Indispensable is a podcast focused on hearing about the business truths, tools, and tips others can't do without. After interviewing hundreds of people for their LinkedIn profiles and talking with thousands of people looking to use professional platforms more strategically, I've had the pleasure of meeting and getting to know people that lead, create, and engage within their companies and in their communities with great intention, abundance, focus, and sheer grit. I want to share their stories so that you can gain insight from a variety of people, not just the podcast and tech rock stars that have become household names. Rather, let's focus on the people whose stories influence those around them, and maybe even you. Everyone has indispensable truths, tools, and tips, even if they haven't realized it yet. And while this podcast isn't about LinkedIn and how to use it, it may weave its way in from time to time. It is, after all, our favorite platform for networking and doing business. Come, join us, and get to know some of my colleagues, clients, friends, and neighbors. Welcome. This is Colleen McKenna from Ontario Advisory, and I'm so excited that you're with us today for Indispensable. Today, we're talking with Anna Kennedy, a Vistage Chair from Greater LA, and the author of Business Development for Dummies. And I've gotten to know Anna over the last couple of years and have really enjoyed her perspective on growing a business, working with small business people throughout the LA metro, and really think that she'll bring some insight into business development, sales, CEOs, what they're facing today. And so welcome, Anna. It's great to have you with us. Thanks, Colleen. I'm delighted to join you today. And uh, the first thought that people will probably have is L.A. Is she from L.A.? <laughs> it comes with this voice. That's right. So tell us where, a little bit about where you're from and how you got to L.A. because we know you didn't start there. I didn't start there. So I was born in London and spent the first 30 odd years of my life uh, in, uh, in England and then my husband had this flight of fancy to come to the United States for a short period. So we did that 25 years ago and uh, we're still here. So, but the, but the accent sticks. Well, and it's not only charming, but everybody could probably listen to you all day as I could, right? Just because it's, you just catch our attention. And I love how you actually talk about that right on your LinkedIn profile. And I think people like to hear, like to, probably want to hear your voice as soon as they read about you. Yes, it's a little less of a problem here in Los Angeles because, of course, we have a lot of English people associated with the entertainment industry. But when we lived in Minnesota, um, they would ask me to repeat things endlessly because they were listening <laughs> to the voice, not to what I was actually saying. Right. So you were like live entertainment, right? Absolutely. <laughs> That's great. So tell us a little bit about your background. My goodness, there's a story. So um, I started my career in the chemical industry. Um, I trained as a chemist and I worked for Albright & Wilson, which is a UK chemical company, and then for Shell International Chemical Company. And then I started settling down and having children. And I decided at that time, because I'm you know, getting on in years, that uh, at that point it was a little harder for a woman to maintain a career um, and bring up children. So I decided that I would go into education. And I spent many happy years uh, working in education, uh, 
mostly in high schools and then in uh, 16 to 18 and then in a community college. Uh, and I ended up as the president of a small college in Birmingham, England, uh, which then got acquired, which was just at the point that my husband said, let's go to the United States. And I said, okay, let's do that. Wow. And so you, you settle in Los Angeles. Then what did you do? You really didn't have a network or anything, did you? No, not at all. Um, very few contacts here. It really was an adventure. And um, I joined with my husband in the business who, that had headhunted in from the UK. And I did a lot of work on um, looking at the user experience of people when they were working on software. Um, back a while, you know, 20 odd years ago, uh, it, developers tended to develop systems for people without much regard to usability. And that's something that's changed a huge amount, you know, in this uh, couple of decades. But I always had my eyes on the user and how they felt about using new software. And because of my educational background, I became the company trainer. So I wrote mm. all of the manuals for the software, the software, and I wanted it to be the best it could be. So I worked with the developers to improve the user experience, um, and that was very rewarding. And I finally became a managing partner in that company, and that's the point at which we actually moved from Minnesota to Los Angeles. Um, and so I was out, you know, getting clients, looking for new business, uh, and it, we were merged with US Web, so we became one of the biggest interactive agencies uh, at that time. And I was a managing partner in that firm. It was a wonderful experience, despite the dot-com crash. I think we've gotten over it by now, but uh, it, was, uh, it was quite an opportunity. Well, so that's so interesting. And before we jump into what you're doing now, it's, it's kind of interesting to think about you were really early in on the internet and mm. digital, right? And as you think about that and watched how it's grown and thrived and bombed and regrown over the last 20 years, what are some takeaways from that experience? I think the day that I remember that was sort of most memorable uh, was, and this was a little bit before the crash itself, I went to speak at a conference in San Diego and one of the points I was trying to make to the audience is that internet business is like any other business. In other words, you have to think about the strategy. You have to think about your pricing models and you have to think about your revenue generation. You have to create value for your customers. And there were a few people in the audience whose heads were nodding the rest of them were just completely like static, like they didn't receive that message well. And I think it was just that there was this image that, you know, millions and millions of dollars were going to be thrown at you so that you could start, start an internet business. And most of those companies failed. And of course, a, a number of them failed during the dot-com crash. And I just held on to that fact that there are some core principles about how you run a business that apply to internet businesses as well. Whether it's just that they're creating a website to promote themselves or they're actually selling online. I was early into e-commerce, so I did a lot in that field as well. They, they didn't seem to have those principles uh, at their back. And that's where I could see companies failing already 
even before the crash started. Well, and how do you think um, that's happening today, right? Because I, I do believe that today there are so many people who are celebrated, right, and have done well, and there are the unicorns, right, that everybody talks about. And so I do believe that there's still people that think that they can be the next whomever and create the next whatever without really having those principles in place. What's your thought on that? Yes, and I do think if you look at how businesses are run today in that space, it is different. Um, it's true that investment money is still there and they can go get it if they have the right kind of disruptive technology. It really is technology-based, you know, those bit, like you say, those unicorn examples. But, you know, they still have to have a really good plan. They have to be very convincing for investors and they have to show their path to revenue or at least if they don't have that path to revenue because they really are investing in building a massive new technology. But it's very clear that there are some people already in the marketplace who would be really eager to buy them for substantial sums of money, um, and even if they were pre-revenue or losing money. Um, so that you see those stories. But when I'm working with those um, new businesses that are creating disruptive technologies, and I actually am working with some of those, they they really are looking for what what is the deal breaker here that's going to give us this market, give us this competitive advantage in the market. And they are going to be extremely attractive acquisition. Um, but they still plan and think and operate uh, in a much more measured and considered way than they did, you know, back in the glory day when we all boomed and then buzzed. Right. Right. So share with us what you're doing today. How would you define your role professionally today? We talked a little bit about Vistage and I mentioned you're an author, but how, how do you describe what you do? Because you have such an interesting background from large companies and then education and then early on um, in the early days of the Internet and now. Yes. One of the great things about my career is that it's given me the chance to work with in many different industries and verticals in the private sector, in the public sector, with large companies, with small. And I think that that contributed when I set up my own business. I, I ran a business development agency for 10 years um, and then sold it. And that opportunity, having been a CEO and run that business, was my chance to become a Vistage chair. So the story goes like this. When I started my business in the US, I'd run businesses in the UK, but I'd never done it here. And even though I'd been very senior in certain organizations, I'd never had that experience of having to be responsible for the payroll and you know, worrying about cash flow and so on. So I determined that I was going to join Vistage to help me when I was growing my own small business. And that experience was just mind-blowing for me. I, I tell you what, the group that I was with, that's a, a group of fellow CEOs. It's like a private advisory board. Um, they saved my bacon on more than one occasion. Um, and I really appreciated them for that. And I know that I was able to contribute to them because of my deep knowledge of business development. So weirdly, after I'd sold my company, 
it was January. You know, it's that time of year when you start thinking about what shall I do now? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking to myself, okay, what next? And, and then I had this thought, I wonder if I could become a Vistage chair. I, I, I wasn't sure if I was the right profile or I would qualify. But the very next day, Vistage called me and asked me, have you ever considered being a chair? And I just figured that was karma and I should probably just go with the flow. Right. Always a good, it's nice to have a sign, right? That was the sign. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So today I run a private advisory board of 16 CEOs. They're small business. So they're typically 5 million, around 5 million or smaller. And we work in a group uh, to work on each other's challenges and opportunities and then I coach them one-to-one to help them get around those obstacles or you you know develop those opportunities so that they can grow faster and achieve their goals more quickly and do it with some sanity because small business is just a crazy world it's kind of why I love it I think <laughs> you kind of thrive in that environment yep and do you, do you see patterns among the CEOs that you're working with in terms of maybe in the business development area, that's really challenging and your expertise in that is they probably find hugely helpful. Um, is it marketing? Is it recruiting? All of the above? Well, it's pretty much anything that you can name. Uh, I think one of the common threads at least for the members that I take care of, is that they have a tendency, because of their subject matter expertise, to get a little bit too deeply involved in the day-to-day of their business. Of course, when you start, it's necessarily that way. But there comes a point at which you have to begin to step up and step back if you're going to scale. So that is usually one of the biggest challenges is making that move. And it requires some finesse in terms of how are you going to develop and grow your organization, your staff, your customer base, and so on, in order to be able to do that so that you can spend a lot more time thinking about the future of the business and setting strategy and making plans and making sure that they get executed on. So that's the very common thread. And the commonest thing that new prospective candidates who want to join a private advisory group say is that I'm not sure I've got the time for this. And my answer to them is that's exactly the reason you need to join is so that we can start working on that so that you can release some time in order to pay attention to your business at a strategic level. Beyond that, everything that you've said, business development, you know, hiring and hiring and firing, you know, keeping the right people on the bus, dealing with finance, uh, a number of them, that's not their greatest strength. But just starting to build confidence in all those areas is part of what we do and they learn so much from each other it's a it's an amazing experience to chair a group like that right and their businesses um, I would think they would need to be very nimble right because their businesses some of their business models are just 
continually changing or evolving to fit a customer need, right? In ways, I mean, it's much easier for a small business to pivot than a large enterprise organization. But it's sometimes hard to see. I, I better pivot quickly and soon. That's right. And we're probably living in the most disruptive time ever. Um, if you think of all the changes that are coming, um, and, and indeed some of us or some of them already with us, it's difficult to imagine almost any business not being impact, impacted by those changes. So to give one example, uh, naming no names, I have a Vistage member who has a disruptive technology in the area of finance. And if you think about conventional banking and now banks that are completely functioning online as a technology, there's going to be a very significant shift on, in what banking actually looks like. So those are opportunities that if you don't grasp them and include them in your model and you're in that finance arena, you could well be left in the dust um, and almost every business that I have, you know, within, uh, within my group, there is significant impact of disruptive technologies in their business that they will have to account for. And it's, you know, ev everything from, you know, electric vehicles or autonomous vehicles, you know, through to energy production, um, as I say, ch changes in finance, that is just endless. So future-proofing what it is that you should be thinking about in terms of the evolution of your business and the changes you'll have to make is a critical part of what we have to look at. And I recommend to CEOs that they spend at least an hour a week thinking about that one topic because it's so important. Um, if technology changes and you're falling behind, um, it can be a very fast slide into, you know, your history. You're no longer relevant. And that's tough for a small business to do. Right. So I just want to pause here for a second. And I'd like to just repeat what Anna said, because um, I actually have a comment on it. But what Anna said was she encourages CEOs to spend 60 minutes, one hour a week, thinking about future-proofing your business. Is that correct, yes. Anna? Yes, that is correct. So interesting, um, I was with a Vistage group on the East Coast about a month ago, and the CEO of a healthcare system talked about how in January she started a practice on her own, like with the encouragement of her Vistage chair, but certainly on her own, of spending 30 minutes a day thinking. And in 10 weeks, she said it basically um, had provided so much insight into how she was processing information and issues and leading that she said it's probably one of the most significant things she had, had done in the last five years. So that's an example. Yeah, I totally uh, endorse that approach. Um, CEOs, particularly of small businesses, are running ragged, you know, all day long. 
um, sometimes all night long as well, into the weekends. They're, they're just overwhelmed by how much there is to do, and they rarely take time to think. So that kind of practice of daily or weekly, setting aside time, preferably going somewhere else, taking yourself away out of your office or away from your home, maybe in a library or, you know, in a park and your notepad and your, you know, your tablet or cell phone or something. And just, just thinking about, you know, your challenges, your opportunities, what's coming and reading some, some good articles, you know, following some blogs. There's just so much information out there, but paying attention to it and keeping on top of what's happening that's relevant to your industry is just critical. Yeah, I think that that really just summarized our whole podcast in that one minute, uh, you know, about what is indispensable. And so one of the clear takeaways is future-proofing by taking time away from your day-to-day somehow, some way, and thinking about what's happening in your industry. Because I think that there is a small window Anna, would you agree? A small window. If you're being, if you're considering yourself a disruptor, you you've got to you've got to get on the you know be a part of the wave and ride the wave as fast as possible. You do. Um, I mean, it, it's one of those situations where, and this is particularly challenging for a small business where you, if you don't lead the pack, you're quickly going to get overtaken by somebody else who has the means of maybe getting a bit more investment than you can manage to accumulate. And then you've kind of lost the game. So it is about thinking and then nimble action. You referred to that earlier. It's like being able to be nimble. That is an advantage of small business. The challenge is often finding the funds and the time to carry that disruptive thought through and actually make it happen in practice. Um, but I am seeing it happening uh, with a handful of my members and it's very exciting and it's very challenging for them and they get burnt out and they get, you know, depressed. <laughs> it's it's uh-huh. hard. It's really, really hard. Um, but if they pursue it single-mindedly, then, you know, they, there's a big prize at the end of that road. So I'm just so excited to see them succeed. Yeah, I I think it, there's so much around that. And do you, are most of your members at least, do you find most of them are trying to raise um, funds or are they trying to bootstrap it, combination? Do you see any trends there? I think it's all over the map. Uh, there are certain businesses that one could regard as a little bit more traditional and they're mostly focused on making sure that they're in the black and bootstrapping, but they do at a certain point then make sure that they've got a cushion of cash. So, you know, typically looking at, uh, you know, lines of credit and things like that. And then there are those who are really looking for, I need investors if I'm going to take this to the next level. And whether that is for uh, developing a disruptive technology or whether it's from pursuing some acquisitions, that will be their faster path to growth. Um, they are looking for investment. So, you know, it probably runs about, I would say, 
um, a, a great number of them would look for some cushion for their business so that they don't have cash flow issues once they get to a certain size. And then probably about half will look for some form of external investment so that they can develop the next product or the next service that will be the game changer. And I've got several like that. And yeah, they're, the, they're, they're, all, they're all amazing and great. And I enjoy every one of their businesses profoundly. But it's also quite exciting to think that you might be sitting on top of something that is going to be that game changer. Right. And I think it's so fascinating from your perspective because you you really, you bring all of these, um, this expertise to running a business and like being focused on and sales and marketing and operations and finance and accountability. I know you're big on accountability, but learning about their businesses so you can best provide insight or people that they should be talking to and and just ways to shepherd them and guide them. It's kind of challenging. You really have to kind of dive in pretty quickly and, and learn quickly. Is that, would you say that's true? Yeah, that that is true. And uh, there are times when I wonder, you know, about the fact that my head is full of the detail of 16 businesses. Um, that's a different challenge from running your own and staying focused on just one businesses and your own customers and clients. So that can be a bit daunting at times, but you do get very, you know, you do go deep and you do get ingrained and you do understand who their staff are and, you know, how they're performing and how they're doing in terms of their goals and their key performance indicators. And, you know, you do know what their next strategic moves are likely to be. So, you know, that, that is, a, you know, really diving deep. And that to me is the most, almost the most enjoyable part of it because that's where I feel I can make the most profound difference is when I understand. And just talking one-on-one with the CEO you know, spending, you know, 90 minutes or a couple of hours on that can bring about some really breakthrough ideas as to how they should handle something or what they should do next. Because interestingly, it's actually what you do next that's going to get you to the big goal. It's planning and thinking about what is the next, what are the next two to three actions that I need to take keep myself on track to get to that goal. And um, that, that piece of it, uh, it takes some finesse. And I think they really enjoy and appreciate those opportunities to kind of plan their month and make sure they're doing the right things that are going to move them forward. Right. And, and very often it's so easy for a CEO to just keep doing, right, and, and not, be, not reflect on the plan that they put together last month or the month before. So that accountability piece is huge in terms of what you provide for each of those 16 CEOs. Yes, in most small businesses, there is really no accountability for the business owner, you know, unless they have an advisory board or a small board of directors or some such thing. Um, uh, And even then, um, it, it's not not necessarily uh, unless they have investors that, that that accountability certainly lies there, but it's at a at a you know higher level. But really, we're talking about the detail of the things that they're going to do month after month after month, 
And yes, there is that accountability and they really appreciate it. And they appreciate that they are taking time out to think it through, take the right actions, and they see the progress. Um, and I've had some extraordinary members who were relatively new in their businesses and are growing very fast. And they literally take on every single thing that we talk about that is significant that they should be doing. And they implement it right away. And then they grow faster as a result and with less pain and friction. Um, so it really is quite remarkable being honored to be that guide that helps those business owners, you know, have that, make that kind of progress and feel like, oh, yes, this is very different from what it was like a year ago. That's very rewarding. Right. And I think, you know, we've talked about these dis disruptors, but you also have members, I believe, who are in more traditional businesses. Absolutely. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. Um, I've got people in manufacturing. I've got people in professional services. You know, you, you might think of those as, um, as fairly traditional businesses, although even in those cases, they sometimes can be disruptive. You know, they can think of new ideas and pursue things that have not been done before that the market seems to want. So it, it, can, get, uh, it can get pretty interesting. Right. And yeah, I think that that is really interesting because um, there's a book that I always recommend called The Social Business Imperative. And I, and I love this book because the author, um, I believe her name is Clara Shee, talks about how every business is both social and in technology. Yeah. And for many people who are in those more traditional businesses, you know, that's not the lens that they use or that they see through. And often it's difficult for them to kind of think differently. And yet they know they should, I think, you know, I mean, they're all smart people and they like, oh yeah, I should, I should think about that more, but it's hard to make that transition. How do you encourage those kinds of CEOs? I think one, I haven't read the book, so I'm, I'm going to guess a little bit here, but the thing that strikes me is that one of the most significant shifts in the past, you know, 10 to 15 years has been you know, the insertion into the workforce of a generation or almost now two generations of um, younger people for whom social is, you know, is where they started, mm -hmm. how they think about the world, how they think about communication and interacting and making choices, making decisions is driven socially. And how they think about work is also driven socially. And for business owners, I think that that absolutely determines a shift that they need to make in how they can capitalize on that natural characteristic. It's like it comes in the DNA. I almost don't want to use the word millennials because I don't like labeling people, mm -hmm. um, but I see a lot of power and capability in those younger people 
that wasn't really part of the DNA of my generation or even the generation, you know, uh, that is below me. Um, we didn't think of work like that. And yet that's really a profound impact, both on how organizations function internally and how they function with respect to their market. So that, that to me is very interesting. And some businesses are struggling to deal with it. Um, so that, that's kind of the big thing that, that strikes me. I, I remember hearing a speaker from LinkedIn at one of our conferences, and he talked about how in recruiting young people, they took it for granted that they would probably only stay at LinkedIn for 18 months on average, mm -hmm. and that they devised an approach to making that period of time meaningful for both parties. So they would develop what they called a compact between the employee and the employer that was mutually beneficial. So the question to the employee was, what do you want your resume to look like when you leave here? Because we know it will probably be in 18 months time. And the question from the employee to the employer, employer was coached to be, how can I provide you with the most value while I'm here? And so there was this <clears throat> kind of mutual compact to make sure that the experiences the employee wanted that would help them develop their career and be valuable to LinkedIn would be provided as part of that con compact. Some of my business owners actually took that on as a methodology and worked with their, all of their employees, actually, not just their younger ones, to develop that kind of approach. And the results were absolutely extraordinary in terms of productivity and collaboration and communication and connectivity, um, and much better with respect to how they then dealt with their customers and clients. So that's just a practical mm -hmm. output from this um, trend that you're describing. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot more to the book, so I'm going to get it and read it now. <laughs> well, you know, the book is, I believe what you're talking about is, book, is based on the book called The Alliance ah. by Reid Hoffman, who was the co-founder of LinkedIn, right? Founded LinkedIn. And the book is amazing. And, and this, what you described is what I recall them talking about in the book called A Tour of Duty. Yeah. So they base everything on, think about the military. You go into the military and you're given a tour of duty and it has a beginning and an end. And then you have another tour of duty. And you might stay there for one tour of duty or two tours of duty or 10 tours of duty, but they're all sort of their own thing right and it's and so then there's really a clear expectation I love the book the book is great and in fact with my team and it's a small team of six of us probably every four months I'll say to them individually how's everything going and we're talking we talk all the time but I'm like do you have another six months yeah what do you want to do in the next six months and I look at everything in six months and so then we kind of have a whole dialogue around it. So it's not as formal because we're certainly a much smaller team, but I do, I love this book, The Alliance. And I think that if we think about engaging with the people on our teams, 
this way, it creates so much less friction and so much greater, um, I think, mutual respect and a leveling of expectations so people's feelings don't get hurt. Yes, it's quite remarkable if you also deal with reality rather than a wish and a prayer about, you know, how long people will stay. Um, so, you know, just just coming to reality of what the world looks like today and how people interact in businesses, I think that's huge. And The Alliance is an awesome book. Um, I, I, I totally agree with you. It's, it's, it's really game-changing in terms of how you think about employees and deploy them to best advantage for yourself and for them. Exactly. And I would be remiss if I didn't bring up um, that you are also certified as um, a predictive index um, analyst, and you've also done some work um, and studying around Landmark. Can you share with everybody a little bit more about Landmark? Yes, absolutely. Uh, Landmark is a, um, a company that's been around for uh, uh, quite a number of decades. And um, they have a transformational technology that really assists people in dealing with challenges that they've experienced in the past that might be holding them back. You know, when you think about your life and you have all of these areas of your life that you feel are working really well, and then there's always these other things over here that aren't working quite as well as you'd like them to. And somehow you can never seem to shift them. It's like you're stuck in that area. So Landmark's technology helps you look at some of those areas and start to unlock them so that you get more power and freedom, self-expression or peace of mind in those areas. Um, and I did the foundation course for Landmark, the Landmark Forum, back in 2005. So it's been a while. Um, and I went on to take almost all of their courses at some point or other over the past uh, 14 years, 15 years now, I guess. And um, I continue to attend their seminars regularly. Um, it keeps me alert and alive to where it is I'm, I'm potentially not fully experiencing those four key things. So, you know, that sense of power in a good way to influence outcomes in my life that are good for me and good for others that feeling of self-expression that I'm able to um, say what I think and give my message powerfully, but also sensitively to others um, and um, peace of mind, you know, that, that feeling that you're not harried by life, that you can enjoy life and feel uh, feel at peace with yourself and at peace with others. So those are some of the benefits that I got out of, you know, participating. Um, and I continue to take a look at it. And uh, a lot of my friends have taken it, including my whole family. So it, it has some very profound impacts when, when your environment starts to shift because a number of people have been through the technology. It, it makes conversations much easier 
and uh, more productive more quickly, which is always good. <laughs> right, which is great. And so you actually took the started the program or, or, or started taking the classes for your own self-development, and yet it's kind of cascaded out um, to your family, probably even to how you work with the people you work with, your CEOs, right? Yes, I mean, there are a lot of things both personally and in business that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't taken Landmark's courses. I mean, I would never have started my own business. I don't think I'd have had the courage. Um, I, I, think, I think I would have thought that I wasn't good enough or couldn't do enough. I would never have written business development for dummies. That purely came out of you know, thinking about, well, I could write a book, it would be really great for my business. And then knowing that I would have the courage to call them and say, why don't you have business development for dummies? What they actually said is, we don't know. And <laughs> I said, well, that's probably because it's really difficult to write it. Uh, but you're talking to the author. And after the editor on the other end had stopped laughing, she said, have you ever written anything before? And I said, yeah, I've done several things. And um, they said, well, would you write, write us a draft chapter and, a, you know, a set of contents? And I said, for sure. And a couple of months later, I had a contract to write it. That just would never have happened if I, I just would never have thought I was the, an author um, or had the courage to just call out of the blue. <laughs> right. Which when it comes to sales, Colleen, you know, that's necessary, right? It's having that yeah. courage. Right. And I just heard a line, which I absolutely love. And, and this trainer said, you sometimes you just need courage five seconds at a time. That is so true. That is so true. I mean, there's definitely something inherent in me where I don't like picking up the phone and calling a stranger. But my approach to that is stop thinking about it and just dial the number. Right. Just dial the number. Dial the number because <laughs> if, you get, if you get into a conversation with somebody, you'll know what to say. It's not like I'm ever short of things to say that I think might be of value to that other person. But what Landmark gave me is that ability to shut up the noise in my own head and focus my attention on what was of concern to them. What were they dealing with? What are they worrying about every day? And so, at least I hope that the conversations I have with business owners and CEOs, even if they never join Vistage and we only ever have one conversation, that they will have walked away with something that's of value to them. And I will have learned about their business, which is of value to me. Um, but a, a lot of that ability to communicate in that kind of way came from Landmark. It, it definitely has been a big feature of this part of my life. Mm, that's so so awesome. You and I are alike in that, you know, I think we both have a goal, and that's to, to bring some sort of value nugget to every conversation. I'm like, if people just walk away saying, hey, that wasn't a bad way to spend five minutes with somebody, you've succeeded, right? And sometimes just picking up the phone. It's okay to do that. I tell people that all the time. Just pick up the phone. It'll be okay. I'm yeah. still here. Yep. I picked up the phone, I don't know, by this point, tens of thousands of times. I'm still here. I'm still laughing about it. I can still pick up the phone, and I'm grateful for that, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So I love how you weave all of this together and know that it really completely enriches all of the people that you work with because you blend this um, this deep business knowledge with this other side that, you know, if you look at EQ, right, the more emotional, touchy-feely side, the right brain, the creative, um, and it just makes for um, a more intuitive, um, smart, agile CEO in the end, if they can weave all of this together. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, uh, we were having a conversation actually on Friday in my last Vistage meeting about, you know, what it looks like to have balance as a business owner and CEO. And a lot of those characteristics of being a driving force, uh, being committed to certain results, you know, having key performance indicators, um, you know, doing a rigorous um, assessment of employees uh, and trying to support and help them in their growth so that they can produce higher results. If you can set that alongside, you know, that ability to really listen to what others have to say, to have, you know, the ability to be in the world of your customers and understanding what is it that they really need and do I have what they really need? Do I have something to offer or should I be suggesting something else? You know, having that human touch, um, I, I think that gives you a, a richer quality of life as a business owner than if you were either just trying to, you know, power through based on numbers or, you know, run a very uh, um, culture soft culture-driven organization where everybody got taken care of. It, mm -hmm. It's the blend of the two that has the most power. Right. I think you're right. So tell me, um, so we've, we've captured a lot of truths in this uh, podcast today. What about some of the tools? Are there some practical tools that you use that um, you're busy, you've run, you know, you're very scheduled, right? You need to be as, because you have a lot of people that you're working with. So are there particular tools that you just can't live without? Well, I would say I, I've got to tap back into my expertise in, in business development, uh, particularly marketing and sales. And that is really recognizing that, um, you know, I grew into that space. I, I was working as a primary kind of salesperson for an organization for eight or nine years. And I learned everything I knew from that experience. And that, that was a lot of what I captured in my book. But really what helped me was to think about what it actually means to treat marketing and sales as if that was a professional service. Mm -hmm. And what are the ways in which you can show up that way such that the, the kind of bad rap that sales sometimes has out there in the marketplace that, you know, I could dissipate that. And a lot of that came down to how do we go into a sales process with true integrity? In other words, how, how well are we preparing from the very first time that we are ever have any kind of connection with a prospect right through to the point that they are 
putting ink on the paper, so to speak, and then we're transitioning into some kind of delivery mechanism. What are all the tools and techniques that we need along the way? And for me, sales was never a solo game. I wasn't a lone wolf of any kind. It took a, it took a village to make a sale. And so for me, the biggest tool I think that, that underpins that is a collaborative system where everybody actually knows what's going on with every prospect, with every client, where are they at and what's likely to be next and who needs to be involved and here's the information you need to know, you know, before you join in to this team game that we're playing. So for me, that was the, that's the big thing. And there are so many tools that you could use. I, I wouldn't want to uh, name one, but it really, that, that, that is the profound thing. Um, I think the second profound thing in terms of my thinking is that there is a general feeling that the sales process itself is very much at the dictate of the prospect, like they're in control, because they're the ones who are buying. But I completely upend that in my book. Mm -hmm. And so it's really about the fact that, you know, prospects want to feel safe. They want to feel that they can relax because the person that they're talking to clearly knows what they're talking about. And if you begin with the thought that the sales process should be controlled by the company that's offering the product or the service, it, it kind of flips your mind. It's like, that can't be right. But if you really look at it, the more you control and manage that process, the more comfortable the client feels because they know that they're, they're going to get them asked the right questions at the right time they're going to be provided with great information that has integrity, that they're going to be given pricing that is appropriate, and that their experience of working with you, if they do contract with you, is going to be like this sales process where they can feel trust. So once again, in my book, I describe pretty rigorously how you can control the sales process. Um, and, and I know that a lot of people, when we actually talk about where they're stuck with sales, it's like a light goes off. Oh, my goodness, I never thought of it that way. I'm going to try that. And then they come back and tell me, wow, that worked, <laughs> which is wonderful. And you, and you know it will, right, because it's been tested out quite a bit. Yes. But, I, I, right, I think that there is so much um, – we could spend another hour unpacking everything you just talked about in the last minute. Um, but there is this sort of adversary feeling so much around sales. And I think the minute that you build that trust and people can relax, you, you as a salesperson have so much um, ability to kind of guide them and help them get to the desired state they want to get to, whether it's with a service or a product. Um, and they'll be much more receptive to hearing it. But if they don't ever relax, then they just feel like it's 
you know, it's like a tennis match constantly. And yes. more like how does battle. anybody benefit? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Say that again, more like a what? More like a battle. <laughs> <laughs> battle. <laughs> True. It really does become that, right? And so I think that that's something we want to leave everyone with. Sales does not have to be a battle. It can be something where there's actually a trusting relationship between two groups of people or two people and results can be achieved, right? And so for anybody who is out there trying to figure out business development and sales process, I would highly recommend Anna's book. And we'll have a link to that um, so that you can learn more about the book in our show notes. So Anna, where can people find you? Okay, well, they can find me, uh, uh, certainly my email, I always welcome hearing from people, and that's Anna, dot, that's two ends for Anna, Anna.Kennedy at VistageChair.com, V-I-S-T-A-G-E, Chair.com. I look forward to, see, to seeing those emails. Great. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. There have been so many great takeaways from our conversation, as I knew there would be. Um, so learn more about Anna, send her an email, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks so much, Anna. Thank you, Colleen. And that's all for Indispensable. Thanks for joining us. We hope to catch you on our next episode. Grab our show notes, review them, check out the links included, and head over to interoadvisory.com to learn more about the work that we do in our community and with our clients. <music>